fails us a little bit. We get out and we get so entangled with the world that we forget what God has said to us. We can remember sometimes things people have said to us and said about us, but sometimes it's hard to remember what God has said to us. So if you wouldn't mind standing, I want to turn to Second Chronicles, 29th chapter and the third verse. And as far as I am concerned, this is a very serious, serious charge that has been laid down just before the revival under Hezekiah. And it starts this way. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened he in the first year of his reign, and in the first month opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together unto the east street. And he said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out in the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed, and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God, and have forsaken him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and turned their backs. Also they have shut up the doors of the porch, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense, nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto God of Israel. Wherefore the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem. He hath delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, to hissing, as ye see with your eyes. For lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister unto him and burn incense. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word, for that precious word that was, that has survived the test of time and has been recorded that we might with our eyes feast upon it and that we might gain from the reading of your word and the exhortation of your word, that our life, Father, might be challenged tonight, and we might allow a heart to be digged round about, and the hardness of it, Father, softened by your word, and we might take what is rightfully ours and apply it to our own life. And we'll appreciate you and give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you tonight about probably one of the greatest sins in any one individual's life as well as in the church. The title of this message is one word, and that's neglect. Call your attention to the 11th verse. He said, Now, my sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him to serve him, that you should minister unto him and burn incense, or in our day, that's prayer. And many times without excuse, we relegate God to second place and with no remorse. The Bible tells us to lay aside every weight and every sin because we're encompassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. And perhaps we are not guilty tonight of sins of commission. Perhaps we have not committed any grave sins, and what we have, we probably have repented of. But what about sins of omission? Things that we have been called to do as God's people 
the responsibility that God has laid upon our hearts for it. And yet we have failed because of negligence to fulfill what God has laid forth in our own life as well as in our own church. So as a Christian, as God's people tonight, it's not so much the things that we do that displeases God, but it's the things that we fail to do. And so many times these are sins that go unrepented of. Sins that we sometimes have done it far so long that it's second place with us. It's part of our life. And oftentimes they go unrepented of, which means they're still held to our account. They're still written there. Any sin that is not confessed before God is still charged to our account. It's what the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is for. That's what the high priest is for, is for us to go before him, robing ourselves in the righteousness of Christ Jesus and confessing every failure, every fault, every sin, every failure, every weakness at all times. And we've said it so often, there are times when you hardly know what to say because of the pressure of the world. But there's one thing we neglect to do, and that's get before God, ask Him to forgive us of things that we do and commit willfully, the things that we commit in ignorance. We should add a footnote to that or a P.S. and ask God to forgive us and remind us of the things that we fail to do and omit to do, and that's daily as well as weekly and sometimes monthly. And remember the things that God has called us to do. Now, every one of us know what is to be done in our life. It's not enough just to come to the Lord and feel the cleansing flow of Calvary. It's not enough just to be buried in the precious name of Jesus and necessities of that. It's not enough to be filled with the power of the Holy Ghost in our life. Those are only things that we need to equip us to be the type of Christian we ought to be and to be the type of witness that we ought to be. Anytime we fail in that witness, we ought to bow our knee to God and ask Him not only forgiveness but for help and strength that we do not that same thing again and again and again, that we carry not the same sin before Him at all times. You hear a lot about the neglect of our economy. The economist screams out all the time that we are neglecting our economy. Look what a mess it's in because of negligence. Ecologists scream it out time and time again about the pollution of our air and about the streams and the rivers and the seas until they say if it continues on, they won't be safe water to drink. Agricultural experts scream out about the negligence of tillable land, how erosion is taking our soil and how we're cutting down all the trees and never replacing any in any way in our farm areas and all of this. And neglect of these areas, of course, is sad. But that's nothing to be compared to the Christian's negligence of their spiritual life and of their responsibilities. How many of you are aware tonight that when you were saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Ghost and called of God, that there was placed upon you responsibility that has never been placed upon anybody else's life? God has called you. God has placed you in a place and in a way where there's individuals that only you can reach, that only you can minister to, that only you can have any effect on whatsoever. And many times our life is lived irresponsible as if we answer to no one whatsoever, and yet we answer to all. I answer to my brother and sister, and I answer especially to God. I want to recite to you or relate to you a story that was told 
quite a sad story, but it's told by a former, former governor of uh, uh, Michigan, Dickinson, and he tells the story of a son, of a very prosperous businessman who was the product of negligence. This father had no time for love, and he had no time for discipline. He neglected his son in the greatest areas of a son's life. Friend, a child needs love, and a child needs discipline, and you cannot separate the two. They go hand in hand. If you love the child, you'll discipline him, and if you discipline him, you love him. And if we don't do that, there's negligence on our part. We try to treat children so they'll like us. Well, they're going to love us if we discipline them. And this young man, of course, was affected by that. He got in with the wrong crowd. He become infected with a social disease, and realizing that it was there, it was going to ruin his life, he tried to commit suicide. He failed in committing suicide, but his father found him and sent him to an institution to be cured. They thought he was cured, and he got out, but he wasn't cured. He met a beautiful young lady, very vibrant, very healthy, and fell in love with her. And he married this young lady, and he infected his wife, after which she became with child. The wife, because of that disease, died at childbirth, but the son was born half-blind and idiotic, and this son lived. The father, looking at that half-blind, idiotic child, could not cope with the tragedy that was upon his life. He puts a gun to his head and blows his brains out and kills himself. Years later, this half-blind, idiotic son, a product of neglect, mind you, sometimes we feel as if negligence doesn't affect anyone but us, but you'd be surprised at who it affects in our life. And this half-blind, idiotic son, a product of neglect, stood in line to shake hands with then-President William McKinley. And as he pulled out his hand to shake hands with him, he pulled out a gun and shot the president, and the president later died. This son was sentenced to death. You might say, well, Brother Hoskell tonight, what does that have to do with us, and what are you saying? I'm pointing out to you that four lives were lost because of the negligence of one man to realize his responsibility to stand before God and realize that he had a son that God had given him, and it was his responsibility to love that son. All the son was given the fastest cars and the most money, and what had whatever his soul desired with the exception of discipline and love in his life and in his heart. And this caused four lives, four lives to be destroyed because one man did not realize his responsibility. I don't want to lay a heavy on us tonight, but I shudder to think of spiritual lives that have been destroyed, spiritual lives that have not gotten a chance, simply because we have neglected to pray, we have neglected to witness, we have neglected to live our life unspotted and sinless before a lost and a dying world, that they might see Christ in us, the hope of glory. I shudder sometimes to think of lives that have gone out into eternity unprepared, because of the negligence of God's people. Negligence is bad enough, but for us to fail to realize that, continue to live our life in a haphazard way, and never be bothered, and never allow any guilt to touch our soul and uh, some way bring us before God. What the church world needs, 
What you and I need today is a good old-fashioned guilt trip before God that would send us on our knees and ask God's repentance, ask God's forgiveness on our heart and then say, God, I refuse to be caught in that snare any longer. I refuse to be used by the devil. There's a story in the Bible that's sadder than that. Israel was defeated by the Philistines. You all know the story. 30,000 foot, uh, foot soldiers were slain. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. The Ark of the Covenant was taken, which was the dwelling place of God. The first time that Israel was without the dwelling place of God. And they had taken that. And hearing the news, Eli, being old, fell off his seat and broke his neck. Eli's daughter-in-law, hearing the news, travailed with child and died. And the child was named Ichabod, which simply means the glory is departed from Israel. What has that got to do with us because of the negligence of this one man, Eli? Because he failed to realize his responsibility. Because he let his sons do as they pleased. The Bible says he knew what his sons was doing, and yet he failed to challenge them. He failed to discipline them. He failed in his duty as a father. And because of that, all of this, come upon Israel. They were defeated by the Philistines. 30,000 young men lay slain. Eli's two sons themselves was dead. Eli's daughter-in-law was dead. And a child was named Ichabod. And the greatest thing of all is the glory of God. Because of the negligence of one man, the glory of God was not over Israel anymore. Now sometimes, again, not to lay a heavy on you, but sometimes when you sit and wonder, where is the glory of God? Where is it on our lives as it ought to be? Where is it over the church? Friend, there ought to be a glory cloud settled over every meeting as we come together at all times. And we sit and we wonder, where is it? Sometimes I wonder if negligence hasn't caused the glory, God's glory, to leave the church. Sometimes I wonder if our failure to realize that God is more important than anything else in this world. It's perhaps His glory at one time settled over that newborn church and you saw miracles. And yet we fail to see that anymore. I wonder sometimes there's negligence in our prayer life, negligence in our daily living, negligence in our intercession, negligence in our witnessing hasn't caused God's glory to reach up and depart from us. Friend, if we ever needed anything in this world today, we need the glory of God walking our eyes up and down our pews and in our hearts and challenging us. We need a return of old-fashioned Holy Ghost salvation that burns in the man's heart and in the man's life until God is the most important thing in his life. We need a return of miracles. We need a return of staunch individuals to stand before the enemy and declare. And yet the devil speaks to our heart and says negligence is such a small thing. Such a small thing. It doesn't matter if God moves upon you and you should pray and you don't. God is a loving God. God is a kind God and God is a forgiving God. And you're probably right on that. But could I ask you tonight and challenge you, what happens to those individuals that should have been reached that day when you were negligent in your life? What happens to them 
when they're burning in hell and their lips and cries, that says, nobody reached me. Nobody brought me the gospel truth. Nobody lived a life that made me see it was any different from the world's life. Nobody actually cared. What happens to that individual? What happens to the souls that die? What happens to the souls that suffer that we could have reached? And can you imagine the momentum that moves just like a snowball when we start that little snowball and we roll it down that mountain and it gathers that snow and by the time it gets down there, look what it is. And friend, might I remind you tonight that if you could start something for God and you could reach one life and reach one soul, look who they could reach. And look, though, those that you have reached and they have reached could reach someone else. And what a huge snowball that would be when it reached its peak and end. But what happens? What happens if we neglect to do that? What happens in our life and the way we live it? And, and you know as well as I do that Satan has designed to move and take every minute of our life. He has got it programmed for us, whether we like it or not. And God has said, I want my time. I want my time again. I must have my time again. There must be prayer time. There must be witnessing time. There must be hearing times. Where's my time? God is saying. A negligence. Small thing. Let's go over some of the things that you've heard before. In Luke 19, there's a parable that Jesus is telling. He talks about a certain nobleman that went into a far country to receive from himself a kingdom in return. But before going, he called all his servants and gave them ten pounds, and he says, Occupy till I come. In other words, the translation for that is, Take what I've given you and invest it for gain. You see, when God left his kingdom and his church here, and he gave us all the responsibility. And he gave us something, the power of the Holy Ghost. And he said, now you invest what I've given you in somebody else's life. What God has given you is of no value to God until you invest it in somebody's life. And then that individual invested in somebody else's life. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. And at his return, one man said, My pound has gained ten pound. And Jesus said, I'll give you authority over ten cities. Another one said, I have gained five pounds. And, another, and Jesus said, I'll give you authority over five cities. But the other one said something like the majority of God's people are saying today. I really was afraid. So I kept that pound that you have given me and I just wrapped it up real nice I didn't mistreat it I didn't misuse it I wrapped it up in a napkin where it couldn't get spoiled I wrapped it and I laid it up and then when this man come he said now here it is just like you gave it to me not invested anything not used for anything whatsoever. It was good, and it was a pound, and it was spendable, and it was investable. I could have invested it, but I was kind of afraid of you, God. I was a little bit afraid to take what I've got and see if I could do anything else with it. I was kind of afraid I might lose the whole thing. And so I just simply kept it. And the Bible says, he says, take 
from him that pound. Now, he didn't do anything so bad. He wasn't wasteful so much with what he had. What happened there? He simply neglected to use what he had. He simply neglected it. Now, could I take that out of that setting back 2,000 years ago? And could I put it in a setting in our life tonight that God has come in our life and He has entrusted us with the power of the Holy Ghost and to expand His kingdom upon the face of this earth. And He says, take my power and take my wisdom and invest that in somebody's life. And we wrapped it up real pretty and used it only for our own advantage. It has made us feel good. Oh, I can remember, I hear you talking when the Holy Ghost used to send goosebumps up and down my back and it still does. I have even shouted down the aisles. have even spoken in tongues well and good. But have you invested that power in anybody else's life? Have you used it as a witness? Have you let it stabilize you and mobilize you? And have you utilized it for God? Has it given you to your knees as you occupy before the throne of grace your place and intercede for somebody's life? Has it challenged you from the humdrums of this life and make you to realize that somebody else's life needs invested in? But I enjoy my Holy Ghost. Sure you do. Sure you enjoy it. But that's not what God gave it to you for. God wants His kingdom expanded. When you begin to look at some of the parables, God is screaming out that almost very same word over and over. Negligence. 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 It cries it out. Almost screams it out. Read Matthew 25 where we shout and rejoice over the wise virgins and lit their lamps and finally went in to the marriage supper of the Lamb and how we shout about that. But I wonder if you've ever looked at the sin of the foolish virgins and notice the word virgins which means pure. There wasn't any adultery in their life. They didn't go and commit adultery. They didn't murder anybody. They didn't steal. They didn't blaspheme. There wasn't any idolatry in their lives. All those things that we think makes great sinners. None of those was in the life of those foolish virgins. Then what was their sin? What kept them and the one thing alone that kept them from going in to the marriage supper of the Lamb? What was it? You know what it was. They neglected to bring oil with their lamp. A pure case of negligence in their life. And when it come time to receive the blessing they had always wanted, their negligence kept them from entering in to the kingdom of God. They had wasted their time, invested in nothing, and neglected to add to their life that which would see them through to the end of the world. And what was it God said to them? He was a just Come on, hide behind this now. He was a just and honorable God. And He was a loving and He was a compassionate God. Just like He is today. And yet that parable says, and it reaches out to the kingdom of God, and that parable says that God in His infinite love and His wisdom and His mercy looked at those pure virgins and never stole anything. 
never committed adultery, had never blasphemed, had, had no idols in her life, and he looked at them, and he said, Depart from me, I know you not. Negligence was the only thing that kept them out of the kingdom of God. Now, I ask you tonight a question. If this be the case, how in God's name are we going to make it in with a continued negligence in our lives? Could I submit to you sometimes that we are fooling ourselves? And we are dancing around the great white throne that we have never achieved? Could I submit to you tonight that when God speaks from His holy writ of future events, He means it to be exactly like it is? And could I submit to you tonight that there's a world out here that God's church is neglecting? There's souls out here that God's church is neglecting? There's individuals that we're neglecting? And there's brothers and sisters that we're neglecting. You read a story of a rich man in Lazarus. Lazarus, poor beggar with, sore, with sores all over him, finally found his way into the bosom of Abraham, which is symbolic of heaven. But the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell. Now then... Let's look at that a little bit. As far as the reading of the Bible is concerned, and that's all we have, what was that rich man's sin? It is not a sin to be rich. Not at all. The Bible will tell you that, and God wants to give us as much as He feels like we can handle. So it's not a sin to be rich. And he didn't do anything bad to that uh, unsightly man in his gate. He didn't kick him and say, get up, you can't sit at my gate, you unsightly looking outfit you. He wasn't mean, he didn't ill use him. What was his sin to this man? He simply ignored him. He simply neglected him. He simply acted like he wasn't even there. And the Bible is plain as to where this man went for his negligence. How may I submit to you tonight that God's people and that rich man is symbolic of God's people. We're not rich in the riches of this world. But friend, we have the riches of God's kingdom and the riches of God within us. We have His power, the Holy Ghost. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have what we need in our life and in our spirit. And we're rich above all the riches of this world. And laying at the gates of God's church, His unsightly beggars, that's never been touched by the power of Almighty God, that's never been reached by the power of the Holy Ghost, that they're laying there. And the church walks around. He doesn't kick them and misuse them. He just simply ignores the fact that they're out there. It's easy to forget that the world's going to hell. It's easy to forget and look out at our younger generation and they blow their mind on dope and see skid rolls for alcoholics who lay there dying. 
and look up in the face of the Savior and say, I'm glad I'm not like that. And pride ourselves in the riches of Calvary. All oh, the red rich flow, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that came and cleansed me. Lord God, how I thank you for that. How I thank you for the revelation of the baptism in Jesus' name. I know that I've been put in the family of God. How I thank you for the power of the Holy Ghost in my life. There's a beggar laying there at the doorstep. There's people we rub shoulders with in the grocery store and on our work and sitting right there by our house, the rich man's house, which is the church. And we ignore the fact that they're there. We make every excuse in the world as to why young people are like they are. We make every excuse in the world as to why alcoholics are alcoholics and excuse ourselves and in some way try to wash the guilt from us that friend it won't go away. It's still going to be there. And when that unsightly individual stands before God with a plea, God's going to look at the church and say, where were you at? What was you doing? Or we know what we're doing. We're sitting rejoicing in our own house. We're enjoying the good things and riches that God has given us. And we're failing to share that thing with that beggar that sits outside our gate. That's what... Let God deal with her soul. It's troubled times for me when I move into this message. It's challenging to me, and I know some of you are sitting there and saying, something wrong with that guy. I know I'm going to go to heaven. All I'm doing is pointing you out some parables that identify us. God drawing us a picture and letting us look at it, and He's telling us what He says. And friend, if negligence would send that rich man to hell. I'm wondering what it's going to do for us. Shout in the Holy Ghost all you want to. Speak in tongues all you want to. But until we're mindful of the beggar laying at the gate, something lays our charge. When I was working in the oil field, Go way back into the boonies sometimes. Little paths and little lanes. Turn me up just a little. Little paths and little lanes. So I was hooked up pumping the oil into the big tank truck. I walked all around the corner. This little lane, there stood a house. Beautiful at one time. You could still see some of the majestic features in that house. Great big pillars, great big beautiful windows that had been smashed out and doors. It really took on the air of something beautiful. So I looked at that house and I thought, how in the world can anybody neglect such a beautiful masterpiece and let it go down? The wood was still solid in it. Some windows replaced some paint. I looked on the inside, floors was beautiful. 
fireplaces, everything was simply beautiful, but somebody, somebody had neglected that building. That, that beauty one time has faded and it was gone. As I looked at that, and that was the time when God was calling me into the depths of the ministry, I looked at that and I still remember it as God's voice struck out and said, that's what happens to my house a lot of times. And then He made me to realize that we're the temple of God. And that He took us and He cleaned us up. And He made us something beautiful. I mean, we're majestic. And how God spent some time polishing and painting us and moving us. And he says, then individuals begin to neglect this house. Begin to show me lives at one time shouted the glory of God. Lives one time as beauty admitted from their face and from their lives. And saw them neglecting their spiritual life. And neglecting their prayer life. And neglecting their life to be lived before mankind. And traces of that beauty in their life still remained. But you could see the neglect. In lives at one time shouted the glory of God. You could see God's house being neglected. And you looked at churches, which is the house of God, so to speak. And I'm talking about individuals as fill it and not the house itself. And churches one time that God filled on the day of Pentecost with His majesty. And He filled it with His power. And He filled it with His glory. And it shined forth greater than the new day sun. And the world saw it and knew it was there. I watched that that church disintegrated and then in the 1900s God redone it and He repainted it and He put the windows in it and He made it look beautiful again. All you can look now is the former glory of God's house. See that which sometimes sparkled over the cleanliness of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now sins and transgressions haven't been raised from that or unconfessed. How the Holy Ghost that used to send shivers up and down our spine has hardly touched our life for a long time. And things that used to happen in God's midst and in God's church, it wasn't anything to see a miracle happen every night. It wasn't anything to see the glory of God move somebody from uptown, send him into the house, put him at the altar, and save his soul, and fill him with the Holy Ghost. Man's changed, you say, yes, but God hasn't. What's happened? The beauty has faded. We're struggling just to exist. We don't realize it, but we have neglected our lives. We have neglected our prayer lives. All of our life and all of our energy and all of our time is focused upon us. You know that's the truth. Sometimes it captivates so much of our time that we can't even get to God's house as we ought to. The Bible says, forsaking not, and I didn't mean to go on to this, but most of us are guilty of it anyway. Forsake not, that means neglect not the assembling of yourselves together. And it's so easy to neglect that. The devil tells you there's nothing there for you anyway. And all the time, God's got something that should reach your soul and challenge your life. Should send you back home with a greater determination than desire. And sometimes he sends us home with our red backside. And He means to do this because He's weary and tired of our negligence upon the beauty that He had. Looking into the back alleys, places you see little children unkept, little children dirty, 
parents don't care. It's a neglected child. It can't help itself. It's just simply been neglected. The parents are not paying any attention to it. It's dirty. Sometimes there's no clothes on it. You stand in the back alleys and on skid rows and you watch the drunkards. You watch them falter and fall and wallow in their own vomit. And you see them destroy their own body. Why? They're neglecting their life. Somebody has neglected them and they're neglecting their own life. And I think of all of this, that beautiful house, the temple of God, neglect, unkept, born and drunkard. But I don't think there's anything any worse than a soul that has been neglected. Father Lord, I've told this here before, but I think it bears telling again. Because some way it ought to drive home the need of a world that's lost and dying. Our pastoring in the church at Rosiclare, there was a young lady that was a prostitute, came into the church and was gloriously saved and filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. They had already taken some of our children away from her, and they took some others away from her even after she had received the power of the Holy Ghost. And her life was changed. I mean, she turned around. But there was something in that poor individual's life, something that caused her to almost, almost overpower and go back into the same life that she'd always lived. She'd come for prayer time and time again. She'd come midnight hours, sometime to daylight. My wife and I would pray for her. And she said these words, I would rather die than to go back into that type of life again. I'd rather die. But he said, Brother Host, oh, there's something either in me or motivating me something. And if I can't get prayer, then I feel it's driving me back to that. And she said, I'd rather die than that. Things went fine as we prayed for her time and time again. Finally, it came to the place she couldn't find a job. She couldn't stay there. Everybody knew her life. You see what I'm talking about? Even when a life has been changed, people still neglect to realize that God can turn a life around. I said, God can change a life. And her past haunted her. Even church people wouldn't hardly give her a chance. I'm not talking about ours. At that church, I'm not talking about the first apostolic church at Rosie Claire, but I'm talking about individuals that belong to other churches that could have given her a job and wouldn't. Friend, God can change a life. God's blood can cleanse us and make us whiter than snow. And as far as I was concerned, that little girl was white and pure again, made pure by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we stand in our pride and our haughtiness and we don't realize what God can do. And we sit back in judgmental attitude and judge individuals. I call someplace, somewhere, they've been entrapped by the snare of the devil. Oh, friend, don't you realize that God's full from Calvary is still running down through the corners of time and can still reach a soul. I don't know what I would do if His blood didn't cleanse me every day. He didn't quit when I first come to Him. It's an everlasting flow that keeps me clean as long as I confess. And let me tell you something. Individuals that do that is in far worse shape than the individuals they're judging. It's a precarious place to be in. And we as God's people should never put ourselves in that condition. If we judge, God is the judge. We don't pronounce heaven or hell. We preach the gospel. God does the judging. 
But because they couldn't forget her past, because she couldn't find work, she was forced to go north. There she found her a job, tried to find her a church. I could mention the city, and it would astonish you of the things that went on in that city of so-called Holy Ghost-filled churches. She was there for a while, and we didn't hear anything from her. Finally, she called Asked if she's going to church. She said, yes. I'm going to church, Spirit-filled church. She said, yes. I asked her how things was going, and she said, not good. She said, I went and talked to my minister about it. Told him of my problem and told him that it was there, and I didn't know what it was exactly, but I needed prayer. Said, you know what he told me? Said, he told me to go see a psychiatrist. She said, I told him I've been to a psychiatrist. He's never done me any good. Only God can help me. This was a Holy Ghost-filled individual, I want you to know. Passionate, spirit-filled church. I had better than hundreds in it. Go to a psychiatrist. A little girl whose life had known nothing but abuse. Been raped by her father. Been abused by every man almost in the town. And her life was raised that way. Her little girl was brought up, knew nothing else but that. And came to God and knew that that was the type of life to live. And was struggling against that thing. And knew that God's power and God's hand had had faith enough in God's ministry. And if they could just pray with her. was told to go see a man. I said, find you another one. This went on, and to make a long story short, she called, and I don't remember the hours it's been so long, she called somewhere around midnight. Voices trembling and fearful and demanding on the other end of that telephone. Brother Hostel said, what is it? said, this is Lynn. So i got to have prayer. i got to have prayer. That thing's trying to dominate my life. I'm fighting this devil. He's here. He's going to destroy me if I don't get prayer. I said, Lynn, you're too far away. I'll pray for you over the telephone. I prayed for her over the telephone. I felt the power of God, but it wasn't like laying hands. Friend, there's something about laying on hands. And God said it. She went ahead, and then about 3 o'clock that morning, she cried out the same thing by the host called. If I don't get somebody to lay hands on me, pray for me and rebuke this thing, it's going to destroy me. I prayed again. It's all I could do. Three or four hundred miles away, no way I could get there. I asked her again about churches. She named some of the churches she'd went to. Ignored her. Neglected her. Just like the little beggar at the door. God's church should have been filled with riches. It should have been filled with power. There should be enough power in God's church that the demons of hell would tremble and refuse to stay in there. We didn't hear from her anymore. Three days later, we got a telephone call. And rather than submit to that thing, now you tell me what's going to happen to that girl. Rather than to submit to that thing, rather than to go back into that type of life, Lynn took an overdose of sleeping tablets and killed herself. She had been dead three days before anybody found her. 
a young lady, troubled, known by numerous churches, and nobody cared enough to find out where Lynn was. Lay dead three days. Sad, you say, yes. That's one that I know about. Chalk up one that I have nothing to do with. But seeing that and knowing that, I wondered how many limbs has there been in this world? How many limbs have come through this church at the first Pentecostal church at Birdseye and have been turned aside because of negligence? Because we had no time for nobody but herself. Neglect. Simple neglect. Sin a soul to meet her God. I'm not her judge. I know what people say about a person taking their own life. But I know the mercy of God. I don't know what's going to happen to Lynn. But I know that someplace, somewhere, there's going to be a lot of Spirit-filled pastors and a lot of Spirit-filled Christians that's going to have God's finger pointed in their face. And asked why. While they rejoiced in their huge tabernacles. While they shouted with their robe choirs. Peeped through their stained glass windows. The soul went to hell. Sometimes while we come and sit in our blue pews padded. Enter into that door with merriment in our heart. And go home again and forget that there's souls out there other than us. I wonder. I wonder. Neglect. Let's look at that now before revival could come at all. We've been talking about revival. But revival just don't happen. You make it happen. You look around and see why it isn't there. And then when you hear it, you do something about it. And I'm pointing you out one thing and one reason, and one alone why it's not here. We're too busy with ourselves. We're too busy living our own lives. We've allowed Satan to steal our time and take our energy and just take our intercessory prayer. And we have neglected unstable souls. Sometimes we ourselves can just barely hobble in and out of God's work. Hezekiah opened the doors to the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now you say, but the, 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 the doors in this house is not closed. Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the door. I am the door. And when you don't give him his rightful place, you close the door. You can open those doors all you want to. And until the door, which is Jesus Christ, is open to individuals, the door is closed. Right. Amen. And sometimes we close doors with our isms. And with our schisms. And with our traditions. And with our ideas and opinions. 
and we place upon somebody which we say is relevant to salvation when God says the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and iniquity and we close the door of Jesus Christ in their face before they have a chance to taste him Hezekiah says you got to open the doors and that's what we got to do we got to open the doors we got to say God who will you send in that will come here I won't dress them until I catch them. Amen, Brother Oshkoff. I won't demand of them until they know what the demands is all about. I'll present to them Jesus Christ and Him crucified in a hundred years, three days and three nights, rose again, ascended into the heavens, and came in the form of the Holy Ghost with a promise, and I'll come again. That's the doors that need to be opened to a lost and dying world. I don't want to come to that church because they demand this, that, and something else. I've had it said. I said, all we demand is that you accept the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and listen to what He has to say for you in your life. I won't judge you on the merits of where you came from, where you've been, what your denomination is. Denominations don't mean a thing to God. Never has and never will. And doesn't now. And let me tell you something. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ does. If you haven't repented, you need to. And if you're not baptized in His name and in the family of God, you need to be there. Not to say you're going to go to hell, you're not. And if you really want to be in the bride of Christ, you'll take on His name. The power of the Holy Ghost to motivate your life. Hezekiah uh, opened the doors. Neglected closed the doors. They'd forgotten what it was all about. What was God's house for anyway? So they just closed the doors on it. And Hezekiah brought in the leaders. Hear it now. Am I talking to myself? He brought in the leaders. And he said, first thing you got to do is sanctify yourself. Is set yourself apart. Meet for the Master's use. You've got to get out of this idea that everything you think is what God thinks. And you've got to get on your knees and you've got to sanctify yourself. Leadership needs sanctifying. Come on. Come on. Then he says what you've got to do is sanctify the house of the Lord. Then you've got to carry the filth out of the holy place. The filth out of it. Well, I know sin's filthy. Well, so is some of your traditions. So is some of your ideas as far as God is concerned. That's filth in God's holy place. That's majoring on a minor. Neglect caused this. Neglect. Hezekiah told him to light the lamps. Light the lamps. There needs to be light there. What God say? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. In other words, if a church is going to amount to anything, it's got to get the word of God in it and inside of our lives. Then you can shout till Jesus come and you need God's word. You can speak in tongues and dance until Jesus come and you need God's word lit in your heart. You've got to admit, a lot of places you go, 
hour and a half or two hours of dancing and shouting 15 minutes for God's Word, that won't get it, friend. I know I've been taken to task. I know I have. I've been told, well, you think all you've got to say is the only thing that's important. It's not what I've got to say. It's what God's Word has to say to you. And it is important. It's important for us to worship God. It's important to speak in tongues, friend. But the most important thing is to sit under the Word of God and let it lodge in your life. Tables need to be turned 15 to 20 minutes of shouting an hour or so of God's Word. Not going to hurt anybody. But you've got to know how to live. You've got to know what's in your life. Paul tells Timothy not to neglect the gift that is in him. You see, God has given gifts. It's not His fault. But we've simply neglected them. Paul tells us we ought to give more understanding to the things that we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip or we neglect them. It's important. Oh, I know most of us don't realize that. A lot of us realize they're running and raving in that preacher and it's going to be better an hour tonight. And then we go home and forget everything that God has tried to tell us. And Paul warns us. And we ought to give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. He said, if words spoken by angels were steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received its just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Friend, that's plainer than I'd put it. But it is challenges. How are you going to escape? How are we going to escape judgment? How are we going to escape the fires of hell if we continue to neglect what God has placed in our life? But then in trying to close, not true, but I will quit. There are some examples in our Bible of things that we're not neglecting. It wasn't easy. There was perseverance. There was intercession. There was times when they could have walked away from that, disregarded it, looked at it and said, you got your own self into it, get yourself out of it. But Abraham is the greatest example of not neglecting the duty which was his. You see, it was Abraham that brought Lot out of the city. And because of that, Abraham was responsible for Lot. A lot of us don't realize that, but he, he, told, he came out with him, although it really shouldn't have, it caused him more problems. But Abraham realized that this, my brother's boy, is my responsibility. I don't agree with what he's doing, and I'm not going to turn him over to the devil. He's my responsibility. And all the grief that Lot caused Abraham with the, with the uh, fight of the herdsmen, and Abraham said, Lot, you just pick out whatever you want, and I'll take the other. And of course, before that, Abraham had rescued Lot. Lot had caused dissension. But yet, Lot chose the way and he headed towards Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story. And Abraham turned and went to the other plains. So Lot became a great man in Sodom. Abraham was still dwelling in his tents. And Lot seemed to have it made. Rich man sitting at the gate was a judge in Sodom. Yes, he was. But he was neglecting. He was neglecting what he knew. Sodom and Gomorrah 
was the filth and scourge of the whole world. And Abraham set his family right in the middle of that and let them dwell there. Or what did? So some angels comes, tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy it. If it was us, we would probably say, well, I guess do what you got to do. I've done all I can do. I've tried to raise that boy right. I've tried to do the things that was right before him, and there he is. He knows better, but there he is. But Abraham felt his responsibility. He would not allow that angel, which was God, he kept him right there. And he interceded and he pleaded with him, even coming from 50 down to 10 righteous people. And he couldn't find 10 righteous people and Abraham still didn't give up. He was still before God because his responsibility was to his nephew Lot. I'm not going to let him be destroyed in that city. I'm not going to allow that to happen, God. I'm not going to do it. And Abraham on his knees bound that angel where he couldn't destroy that city until Lot and his family was out of it. Could have turned his back on him, been easier. But he bound him to his promise. The result? The angel looks at them and says, Hasty and escape thither, for I cannot do anything. Hallelujah. Thank God for power with God in prayer. Said, I can't do anything until that Abraham loose releases me. Until Lot and his family gets out of this city, I can't destroy it. Oh, God, help us saints tonight to get a hold of the garment of God and say, God, I'm not going to allow you to destroy him. I'm not going to allow this to happen. I'm where I'm going to be, God. I'm where I'm going to be until you bring them out. Tell us of the woman. Cyberphoenician, you've heard this, but let's go over it again. A Greek by nation. Daughter was grievously vexed with the devil came and sought Jesus. I said, Lord, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Jesus looks at her and says, it's not me to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. <laughs> that would have been enough to turn anybody away from him. But this little woman had a daughter that was grievously vexed 